Please do keep that passage open uh, in front of you, page 1991 there, because that's where we're going this morning. And as we begin, let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to hear what you would want to say to us from it today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what would it look like then for us as a church at All Souls if we were indeed, as Charlie was encouraging us just a few moments ago, to be a praying church this year in 2024? And what would it look like if we were to pray like these great examples of prayer that we have in the Bible, like Abraham, like Moses this morning, like David, as some of us were thinking last week, uh, or indeed of Jesus himself and of the Apostle Paul. And we'll be looking at some of these in the weeks to come. But today, we're thinking about praying like Moses. And these wonderful chapters, Exodus 32 to 34, uh, are a kind of case study, an effective intercession on behalf of a people who had become sinful and rebellious. It was very effective, though it wasn't instantaneous. It was a prolonged engagement with God that lasted several days uh, and incredibly bold. So I wonder if you're ready. And as Grace said, we've had that first reading. We'll spend a little bit of time in that passage, and then uh, she'll read another bit, and we'll come back more short and more briefly for our final two points. So if we're going to pray like Moses, then in this passage, the first thing we have to realize that he was praying in the face of God's anger. You see what God says there in verse 10? God says to Moses, leave me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them, is what God was saying. You see, we might wonder, well, what was the big problem here? After all, it may have seemed a bit reasonable what they say to Aaron. Moses has gone AWOL for over a month up the mountain. Maybe the Amalekites were still around and these people thought, well, we need something to lead us forward. But when you put this passage, Exodus 32, in the light of all that has gone before in the book of Exodus, it is truly shocking. You see, the first 18 chapters of the book of Exodus were the great story of redemption when God brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. It was, in fact, the greatest act of God's redemption in history until the cross and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these people knew that. They knew this God, the God who had brought them up. And it wasn't some golden bullock made out of earrings, earrings from ears that had actually heard the voice of God at Mount Sinai. Uh, and then gone and broken three of his commandments. This was a serious thing. Here's how one of the Psalms describes it. Uh, in Psalm 106, uh, the psalmist says this, that at Horeb, that's at Mount Sinai, they made a calf and they worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glorious God for the image of a bull which eats grass. Can you hear the irony in that? They forgot the God who had saved them, who had done great things in Egypt. So he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. So you see, this was a serious, dangerous moment at this point. Now that's the first 18 chapters. You move on and you discover something which God said to them in Exodus chapter 19 when they got to Mount Sinai. God said to the Israelites, you will be for me my treasured possession. You'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what God says to them. But look at them now here in verse 6. They're feasting, they're reveling, they're having an orgy. These people who are supposed to be so special to God. 
And look what they said to God when you move on to uh, chapter 24, when God seals all of this with a covenant and sacrifices, then what the people said to God was, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. That's what they said. But look at them now in verse 6, what they're doing. And then later on in chapter 25, when Moses has moved up the mountain to meet with God, and God tells him to build a tabernacle, a tent, so that God can come and camp with his people and go on the journey with them. This is what God says, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. That's what God wanted to do. He wanted to bring heaven to earth and actually live in the midst of his people. So you see, What happens now in chapter 32, in the face of all that that has happened already, is astonishing. It's shocking that Israel turns out to be like all the other nations, just rebellious, idolatrous, immoral. And when you put that in the light of all that God had done for them and all that God had promised them and all that they had promised God, it is, as one commentator said, it's like committing adultery on your wedding night. It's as shocking as that. And you see, this produces an enormous problem for God. Because these are the people, you see, through whom God wanted to be agents of his blessing to all the other nations. But what if this people now turn out to be just as sinful as everybody else? These are the people through whom God wanted to bring healing and reconciliation to his whole creation. But what if these people now are just as infected by the virus of sin as anybody else? And God says to Moses, get out of my way. I'll destroy them. And then I'll start again with you. I'll make you into a great nation. But Moses isn't having that. Moses, in verse 11, jumps to prayer. He jumps into this space, as it were, that God creates by telling him what he's going to do, which God didn't need to do. Uh, but he, as it were, almost invites Moses to intercede. And he jumps to prayer in the face of God's anger and his people's apostasy. So you see, if we are to be praying like Moses then we too have to realize that we pray in the context of unfaithfulness and apostasy and rebellion in God's people, God's church. This past week on Thursday uh, was the uh, licensing of our dear brother, many of us remember him, Luke Ijaz, who was licensed as the minister in charge at Emmanuel Church down there in Wimbledon. And a good number of us from All Souls went along to that service, and it was a wonderful time. And how refreshing it was, how encouraging, how nourishing to hear familiar words, prayers, confessions of the Church of England in its formularies and its creeds that have been said for centuries, for 500 years, and indeed going back even 1,500 years before that to the Church of God even in apostolic times. And and to affirm these great truths of the gospel together in that licensing of Luke to affirm our loyalty to Christ, the authority of the Scripture, and to think, yes, this is our faith. This is our church. But sadly, as we know, last year, a significant part of the leadership of the Church of England made decisions that authorized prayers, liturgies, services, 
which an equally significant portion of the church, including ourselves here at All Souls, believe to be a turning away from the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine, the biblically-based doctrine of marriage and of sexuality. And this decision has caused a great deal of confusion and distress and division within the church and a great need for prayer, praying like Moses. But of course, what's happening in our church, the Church of England, is only symbolic. It's only, in a sense, characteristic, symptomatic of what's happening in Western culture in general and in some parts of the Western church. Well, like the Israelites, we've decided we'll follow the gods of the culture around us, the people around us. Our gods, of course, are not a golden bullock on some statue, but the idol of our own autonomy, our own self-fulfillment. We'll, we'll make our own gods. We'll make our own rules. And we'd really rather have the kind of gods that will just watch as we enjoy our feasting and our revelry and our freedoms, as in verse 6. We don't really want the God who spoke authoritatively and lovingly for our own good at Mount Sinai and, of course, through the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. So what can we do? Well, what must we do? We must pray, and pray like Moses, as he did, praying even in the face of God's anger at the people of God who are so often apostate and rebellious against him. So praying then in the face of God's anger, but secondly, as we move on in the story in verses 11 to 14, and we look at Moses' actual prayer, we see that he's praying in line with God's priorities. And that's what we see here, as I said, in verses 11 to 14, where Moses almost interrupts God and almost says, God, you can't do this, and he appeals to three things in his prayer in verses 11 to 14. Can you see them there? First of all, he appeals to God's redemption. Now, God had said in verse 7 to Moses, the Lord said, go down because your people who you brought up from Egypt have become corrupt. And in verse 11, God said, ah, just a moment, God. Why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought up out of Egypt? Don't Load it all onto me, God. You brought these people up out of Egypt. They are your redeemed people. And I didn't think it was such a good idea at the time, if you remember, Lord, is what Moses is saying. So he's, in a sense, he's challenging God here. So you need to remember who these people are. These are the people you have redeemed out of Egypt. They're your people. And secondly, he appeals to God's reputation in verse 12, where you see he says, why should the Egyptians say, well, it was with evil intent that this God, Yahweh, brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them from the face of the earth? So Moses says to God, God, you need to remember that you can't do this just in a vacuum. You just rescue these people out of Egypt. If you now wipe them out, what are they going to think? They say, well, who is this God, Yahweh? What sort of God is he? If he brings people out of Egypt and then destroys them, well, either he's incompetent because he can't take them any further, or he's malicious. He intended it all the time. So Moses says to God, is, is that the kind of reputation you want circulating around the nations of the Middle East? You need to think this through again, God, and protect your own name, he say. And thirdly, he appeals to God's promises in verse 13. He says, remember your servants Abraham and Isaac and Israel to whom you swore by your own self. 
to bring them out, to give them the land, and then ultimately to bless all the nations through them. God, that, that was your promise. That was your oath to Abraham. You can't just go back on that. So you see, Moses here doesn't try to ask God for sympathy. He doesn't sort of say, well, you know, they didn't really mean it, and you're not really serious, are you, God? No, no, he doesn't do any of that stuff. In his prayer, he appeals to the very heart of God, what matters to God, God's redemption, God's name, and God's covenant promises. So you see, if we as a church are going to be praying like Moses, then our prayers also need to be rooted in God's priorities. And of course, for us, standing as New Testament Christians on this side of, of the cross and resurrection of Christ, for us to be praying in line with God's priorities means that God's redemption, of course, speaks to us of the cross of Christ. So we need to remember who we are as the redeemed people of God, the people whom God has redeemed by the blood of his cross. Here we stand As one of our songs says recently, here we stand, the church of the redeemed. You see, when when we pray for the church, whether ourselves and all souls or the Church of England or the global church, we are praying for those for whom Christ died. And there's nothing more important to God than the cross of his own son. That's who we are, and the Lord knows those who are his And secondly, of course, we pray on the basis of God's reputation, which means the name of Christ. Because we need to remember not just who we are, but whose we are. That is to say that whose name it is that we bear before the world as Christians, Christ's people. And whatever brings disgrace on the church brings disgrace on Christ. And therefore, our prayer must be that God would defend his own name and his own reputation, and not let it be soiled and sullied by us. Hallowed be your name, we pray, in the Lord's Prayer. And thirdly, when we pray on the basis of God's promise, that promise to Abraham, that speaks to us now of the mission of Christ that God has always wanted to bring blessing to all the nations on the earth. Promised it to Abraham, and through the Messiah of Israel, and now through the people of God. And therefore, we need to remember that. We need to remember not only who we are and whose we are, but what we're here for. We are here on earth as God's people to participate with God in bringing blessing to all the nations of this world in the name of Christ. We are here to bear witness to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and to do it faithfully. So let's let's pray that we do that. Let's be praying that we don't somehow get distracted by all the things that are happening around us and somehow lose our focus on our core mission as a church, which is to be bringing, as it were, the world to God and God to the world through our witness to Christ. Let's, let's make sure that we keep the main thing, the main thing in our praying. And that brings me then to the third point, which is that Moses also is praying out of love for God's people. And this brings us a little bit further in the chapter, if you can just look down to chapter 32, verses 30 to 32. Now, what uh, Moses the next day goes to God, and this is now chapter 32, verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. 
but now I will go to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. Not sure how, but he wanted to pray for them. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive, literally carry, bear, forgive their sins. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. In other words, let me die. The book of life is what he's talking to. What does Moses mean here? Well, it may be, and some people take it this way, that it's a kind of vicarious thing. That Moses is saying, well, Lord, you know, take my life and let them live. I'll, I'll die for them, as it were. Well, perhaps. But the, the, the way he actually puts it, I think, is more a kind of togetherness. He actually says, now, Lord, if you will carry and forgive their sin, dot, 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 But if not, in other words, if you're not going to forgive them, then what? You'll have to destroy them, won't you? That's what you said. But if you're going to destroy them, then kill me too. I don't want to live without these people. In other words, it's Moses saying, look, Lord, we're all in this together. These are your people and I'm serving them. Uh, And it's not so much that he wants to die for his people as asking to die with them. If that's their destiny, it'll be his too. The very least what's happening here is that Moses is rejecting what God had offered him in verse 10. God had said to Moses, okay, I'll get rid of these people and I'll start again with you. I'll make you into a great nation just like I promised Abraham. So it'll no longer be the children of Israel, it'll now be the children of Moses. And Moses, no, 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 God, you can't do that. It's this people or nobody. If you don't get rid of, if you get rid of them, then take me too. It's an act of total self-identification, of humility, of commitment, of love for the people that God had called him to serve. And again, we have to ask this question. If we are to be praying like Moses, then there has to be something of the same humility about ourselves. And indeed, love, even for those with whom we disagree, even with those who we know are sinning against God. And to exercise love in the context of disagreement is something that is very, very hard to do. But we need to pray for it. Because wouldn't you agree that one of the hardest things, whether as an individual or as a church, is that when you are, in a sense, compelled to disagree with someone or some group or some position over a moral issue or a theological issue, especially if it has to do with sexual identity and behavior, then you immediately get accused of being judgmental. You're judging me. You're demeaning my very humanity. And so we, we, we are perceived as being superior and holier than thou and guilty of all sorts of horrible things like hate speech and uh, creating an unsafe space and all of that kind of thing. Let's pray against all of that in our praying whether it may be a perception which is not true or, in some cases, may be dangerously near to the truth. Let's pray that God keeps us as those who are humble about ourselves and who are loving towards even those with whom we disagree because we long for God to bring them also to repentance and forgiveness as for ourselves. So those are the first three things, that Moses is praying in the face of God's anger He's praying in line with God's priorities, and he's praying out of love for God's people. Now let's have our second reading, and then just a couple of more brief points. Grace, where are you? Can you come and read to us 
now from the second part of our reading. Thank you. The second reading uh, follows through from chapter 33, that's page 92. We will read the first three verses of chapter 33, then we'll jump to verse 12 through to chapter 34, verse 9. So let's start. Uh, Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promise on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Parasites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. Verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How would anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning. 
as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, "The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and to forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished; he punishes the children and their children." For the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation, <clears throat> Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, "If I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin, and take us as your inheritance." This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Grace. And just two more short points. Fourthly, then, Moses prays for the necessity of God's presence in the midst of his people. I think that was clear in the reading that we just had. See, who were these people? These were the people through whom God wanted to bless the nations of the world. And for that to happen, it was essential that Israel should remain distinctive from the nations of the world. But if they were to be distinctive, that would be by God dwelling in their midst, as Moses realized. That was the whole point of the tabernacle. But God had said, you read it there in verse 3, okay, he says, go up to the land, but I will not go with you, says God. I'll send an angel, but I'm not coming in the midst of you. That is, in the tabernacle at the very center. But that's awful. What that effectively means is, that cancels out all the last seven chapters of the book. There's going to be no ark, there's going to be no tabernacle, there's going to be no sacrifices, there's going to be no dwelling place of God in the midst of his people. And Moses realized how horrendously serious that is. And so he intercedes, as you see there, in verses 14 to 16, he wrestles with God, as it were, until God, as it were, promises unambiguously in verse 17 that he will go in your midst, is the literal words. I will go. Not just an angel up the front, but God himself at the center. And without God's presence in the midst of his people, says Moses, there's no point in us going at all because we'll not be any different from any other people. So you see, if we're going to be praying like Moses this year, we need to pray for God's presence in our midst, because without that, we lose all our distinctiveness from the surrounding world. We no longer be salt and light in London. Without the living God through his Holy Spirit being in our midst, then really, Our church life is no different from any other kind of social club or a bunch of friends who just like to get together and do stuff. If the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is not the integrating center of all that we do in our outreach, in our ministries, in our service, then we're no different from any other agency that's trying to do good and to help the needy. Let's pray with Moses. Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, then don't send us out into this coming year because we can't face its challenges on our own.
And God said to Moses, yes, I will be there. I will be with you. And that leads finally to our last point, which is that Moses ultimately knows that he's praying on the foundation of God's grace. God, Moses says to God, show me your glory. We might say, Moses, haven't you seen enough of God's glory up the top of the mountain for the last month? But no, he says, I still want to know God. And God says, all right, you asked to see my glory, I will show all my goodness. Isn't that amazing? The glory of God is the goodness of God. The goodness of God is the glory of God. And so you have this amazing moment, uh, which leads ultimately there in chapter 34 to verses 6 to 8, where we have this text which God defines himself. God says these amazing words, that he is the Lord, the Lord, that is Yahweh, the God of Israel, the compassionate, the gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love, but forgiving sin and wickedness, but ultimately punishing the wicked. This is, this is the God of the Old Testament. This is the God of compassion and grace and love, but who will not acquit the guilty. This is the paradox, you see, of the God we meet in the scriptures. He is the God who is willing to carry and forgive sin and yet to punish the wicked. And we want to know how can that be fitted together. And ultimately it only can make sense at the cross of Christ because that is where God simultaneously did both. It's where he chose to bear our sin and to bear the punishment and judgment on the wicked and to bear it in the person of his own son, Jesus Christ. And so you see, this crucial part of the book of Exodus means that Israel, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, they're going to move forward, the journey will go on, the tabernacle gets built, everything moves forward, but they move forward now chastened, humbled, and a people who knew two things about themselves, that they were still stiff-necked sinners, but that their sins were being carried by their forgiving God of grace and compassion. And you see, if we are going to go on praying like Moses in this coming year, we need to do it like that too, that we pray on the foundation of God's grace. We walk forward on two legs, knowing ourselves and knowing our God. We know ourselves to be sinners like Israel, stiff-necked and rebellious and in need of constant daily forgiveness as individuals and as a church. But we also move forward knowing our God to be the gracious, compassionate, forgiving God revealed in the scriptures of Israel and ultimately who became flesh and died and rose again for us in the Messiah of Israel, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's on that basis that we can be a praying church in the coming year. Let's pray together.